As we are seated, would you open your Bible to Matthew chapter 18? Matthew chapter 18, we'll, we'll read the first six verses in a minute here. Uh, but uh, this is, Lord willing, wrapping up our study on uh, children, the preciousness of children to God. We've been learning four ways that we can see how precious children are to God. And somehow what was originally intended to be one message has now, this is now the third message on, on the preciousness of children to God. And um, as, as was mentioned before already, uh, all of us who have believed in Jesus Christ and have repented of our sins, um, we are on our way to heaven, amen. We have become children of God. And in the New Testament, that is the favorite way of referring to us, children of God, um, His children. So children are precious to Him or He wouldn't have called us <laughs> His children when we come to the Lord Jesus. Well, we've looked at uh, two ways that we can see that children are precious to the Lord. The first was that children are special to God because He makes them in the womb. From the moment of conception, God forms them. He cares for them. And they are made in His image, as we all are. Every human being of every shape, color, size, all of us listening today, human beings, are made in the image of God. And all of us, really, in that sense, are God's children. He cares for every one of His children in the creation sense, providing for them, um, giving them shelter and food and clothing and water. But children are especially cared for, and that's the second point that we covered uh, last week. Children are special to God because He makes them especially cared for. Uh, we looked at how God brings human babies out of the womb in that helpless state, needing to be cared for, and we, learn, we can learn a lot from that, that you know, as a reminder constantly that before God, we're helpless. We need His help every day. And because babies and small children are so helpless, that ensures that uh, some of that energy that He gives us, we use for caring for children. And that's what normally happens. Uh, but those children who aren't cared for, the, the children that we, that we learned about that pass away before they can even understand the gospel, before they can comprehend what it even means to be sinful, God brings them home to be with Him. That was part of our study last week. He's so merciful. He's such a gracious God to them, the same way He is to us who have the capability to believe in Jesus. It's still His amazing grace through faith. Well, this morning, let's look at a third way that we can see that children are precious to God. Number three, children are precious. They're special to God because He makes them our example. He makes them our example. If, if you've looked at Matthew 18 here, you've already seen that Jesus is going to use children as our example in this place, but He does that in more than one place. In Matthew 19, one chapter over, He says, let the children come to Me, do not hinder them, for of such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And in Mark 10, we studied this uh, several months ago, let the children come to Me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And uh, in Luke as well, Jesus says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Again, similarly, he says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So we see many places where Jesus cares for children. He uses them as an example more than one time for us. And the example of what it looks like, what it what it would be for us to be able to enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. 
So let's look here now at Matthew 18, beginning in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, we're going to unpack these verses in a minute, but there's a follow-on thought here from, from our point number two from last week that we see when God especially cares for children, it's, it's most obvious when He takes them home to be with Him if they die before they can understand the gospel. That covers young children, it covers babies before they're born, right? They can't hear or understand the gospel. So whether they have uh, passed away either through a miscarriage, which is such a difficult time for the parents, or through an abortion, those babies go home to be with him. But these verses are even more evidence of that truth as we consider them in light of the example that Jesus holds them up to be. He says that we need to become like children or we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, that implies children are going to heaven. Now, some people say, no, 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 that's not what it says. That's not what it means. It just says you have to become like them. It, he says, of such belongs the kingdom of God. But there are two reasons that I believe that this does teach us that children are going to go to heaven if they die. And first, it's because of Jesus' anger when the children are taken away from him. You remember in Mark 10, how indignant, how angry Jesus got at his own disciples for taking the children away. If he only meant, well, you have to be like children to enter the kingdom of heaven, but children aren't going, why would he have been so angry about him, them taking away from him, right? He could have just pointed at them and said, yeah, become more like the, the, the kids. Get them out of here, but become more like them, um, and then you can go. If he's just going to cast them away into hell when, if they die, why would he want them near him on earth? He wouldn't be so angry that they were leaving. They belong to him, so they belong with him. That's why he became indignant when they were taken from him. He took them in his arms. He placed his hands on them. He blessed them, right? They are his to love, not to cast out or send away. So that's one reason, I believe, uh, because Jesus got angry when the children were taken away. But the second reason I believe that this is showing us that children do go to heaven is because of Jesus' example of entrance into the kingdom of heaven that consists of children. Um, his example for what a person has to be like is a child. He says here in, verse eight, in, in chapter 18, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter. He says if you do that, you will enter. But the argument goes, but the child will not enter. <laughs> what, what kind of example would that be for Jesus to be showing us? Be like this child, even though this child's not getting in, but if you become like the child, then, then you get in, right? That, that kind of example wouldn't make any sense. If he's not going, why would I want to be like him, <laughs> right? Why would I want to be like a child? And why would Jesus use him as an example, the child there? What do, we, what do we call it when someone uses an example of what not to do? That's a bad example, right? Don't be like this. But Jesus says, yes, be like this. Follow the example of children. And so Jesus demonstrates his care for children in multiple ways. And one of the ways that he does that is by holding children up as an example to us. Children are so precious to God that if, if you want to become a child of God, then you've got to become like a child. 
So this is, this is pretty serious, right? This, this is a pretty serious example that Jesus gives. Uh, children are going to heaven, according to our study, and if we want to go to heaven, if we want to be in the kingdom of God, then we've got to be like them. Um, how can we enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says you can't if you don't become like a child. Now, to me, that means we need to make sure that we understand what this example says and what it's all about, right? Because this is pretty serious. What is it about children that we need to be like if we're going to follow their example? Entering into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, that's one of Jesus' ways of saying we receive eternal life. It's a synonym of living the life of a redeemed child of God here and now so that we will enter into eternity with him in his kingdom forever. So it's living for him now as we will live with him later. So how do we do it? What, what does it look like to become more like children, to be able to enter the kingdom of heaven? Is Jesus talking about you need to not be tall like children? Is that what he's saying? You need to not grow tall. Uh, does he hold up the faith of children or the innocence of children? What is it about children that we need to become like so we can enter? There's only one key aspect in all of the verses that Jesus gives us and when he says to become like children, and it's not faith. Is not faith. Now, let's look at that. You have A in your, in your notes there, the example that Jesus gives of children. The example is not childlike faith. Have you heard of that before? Have you heard that? You need to have childlike faith. How many times in the Scriptures does Jesus tell us, brother and sister, how many people in the Scriptures ever tell us to have childlike faith? Zero times. It's zero times. You'll not find it anywhere in Scripture where you and I are told to have faith like a child. So you say, well, then why are we talking about what's not there? <laughs> well, because it's, it's, it's been fed to us so often in the church. You need to have childlike faith, but there's no verse for that. Why not? Why, why is there no verse that says you need to have childlike faith? Well, I think there are two reasons. Now, uh, these are reasons that I came up with. I'm sure there are more. These are reasons why God didn't say something. So I'm sure God has a lot of reasons. But two things I thought of, for one, uh, what would faith in a child look like? What would they have faith in? For you to have faith in something, there's got to be the substance, the, the objective truth and, and reality that you believe in. That's what you have faith in, right? We don't just believe in nothing. We don't just have faith. We have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We have faith in our Father. But if you're too young to understand who Jesus is and was, you're too young to understand that you are a sinner and you're, you're condemned before God, you cannot fathom the, the gospel that you and I are, are completely born sinners and we need God himself to save us instead of judge us. And the only way to do that is to repent of our sins, turn away from our sins, to believe in Jesus Christ because of his perfect life his death on the cross, his resurrection three days later, his intercession for us now, children are going, I don't know what any of that means, right? If they don't know what it means, how can they have faith in it? That's why one of the reasons I believe that, that we're not told to have faith like a child. You have to be able to understand to believe it, at least in some meaningful sense, right? I mean, none of us can truly say, well, I can explain to you the hypostatic union where God comes together in, with man and the, the two natures don't mix and he doesn't become a mutant and he's not like two different, like multiple personalities, a God personality and a man. You know, we, okay, we understand what it's not, but we can't fully understand, but to the extent that we understand and that we can understand, we believe. But if we can't get that far, we, we can't believe. So, so 
the Word of God teaches us. The Word of God brings us that truth. And Romans 10, 17 says that's where faith comes from. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of Christ. Hearing and understanding. Hearing and comprehending. So if the core of the Gospels be on their grasp, what would their faith be in? Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, right? But if a child can't grasp them, he or she can't really believe in them with a true faith. So if a child's faith is that limited, uh, that's not the kind of faith that would be held up for us to, to have, right? I mean, that's not the kind of faith that we should strive for. So that's one reason. The second reason that I, I believe that he doesn't tell us to have faith like a child is because, number two, perpetual childlike faith means never growing up in our faith. It means just staying like children in our faith and never growing up. And that, brother and sister, as you know, if you've been here, is not something the Bible is silent about, is it? Uh, the Bible is not silent about our goal being to grow in our faith, to become more like Christ to grow and mature. Ephesians 4. If you'll hold your place here in Matthew 18 and turn with me to Ephesians 4, um, I, I know these are probably familiar verses to us, but it's important for us to be reminded about the faith that we are to be growing in. In Ephesians 4, he says that in verse 11, uh, the Lord has given us the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists, the shepherds, teachers, for what? Well, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. How long do we do that? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. How far? To mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Complete perfection in every way, right? That's who Christ is. That's when, that's when we can stop, brother and sister. We can stop preaching the Word and singing the Word and, and uh, praying the Word and, and being all about the Word of God when we're all perfect, right? That's what he says. Um, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waters and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Children can be easily deceived, and, and we're no longer to be children. We're to be growing up. Verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So did you see it over and over again, that, that that's why we're here? That's what we're doing this morning, right? As we come to the Word of God, we want to be growing. He tells us to be growing and not remaining children in our faith. 2 Peter 3.18 tells us a command to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Um, one of the verses that, that people like, no, no, childlike faith, it says in 1 Peter 2, like newborn infants long for the pure, marital, the pure spiritual milk, but why does he say that? So that by it we may grow up <laughs> into salvation. So we're not remaining children. In fact, Hebrews 5, um, there, is a, there is a rebuke for those who should have been mature at this point. He says, you should have been teaching, but you still need milk. You, you don't have solid food, but you have solid food. Everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, the writer of Hebrews says. But solid food is for the mature. So our goal, what we desire, is not to remain like children in our faith. Our goal is the opposite of that, to grow out of that, right? 
It's mature faith in our perfect Savior. Now, is it okay if you're new to the faith to have childlike faith? Yes. Yes, that's, that's where we are. That's where we begin. That's where we all start, right? But like children, we don't stay children in our faith. We grow and we grow into more mature faith. So that's why I believe Jesus tells, doesn't tell us to have faith like a child. That's not the example that he gives. There are some things that we should be innocent as children in. You remember 1 Corinthians 14, 20, Paul says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Be like a baby. Be like a little infant in regards to evil. <laughs> in that sense, yeah, absolutely, let's, be, let's not even know where to begin. Let's not even you know, be able to comprehend or fathom doing evil. Let's just stay away from it like a baby. Let's not be naive. That's why he says, be mature in your thinking. But don't be um, mature in evil. Uh, stay children. Be like infants to evil. Again, the reason that we went over that was because that it's such a pervasive teaching in the church. And, and it's, such a, it's such a pervasive teaching that if you begin to try to teach some people, they say, well, hold on. I don't have to learn any of that. I'm just going to have childlike faith. <laughs> I don't want to have to grow or learn but he tells us that we do need to do that, that that's part of maturing in our faith, that that's what he wants from us. So if it's not be like children in faith, what is the example that Jesus holds up? As, as he cares for them and he holds them up as our example, what is it that he wants for us to learn? Well, consistently in all of these passages about us becoming like children, the example is humility. So be in your notes, the example is childlike Humility. Look again at Matthew 18, verse 3. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. How do I turn and become like a child, Jesus? Verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's the key attribute. That's what Jesus wants from it. It's not being fun like children. It's not being not tall like children. It's not being imbalanced in our faith or whatever. It's humility. In Mark 9, it was the disciples who were arguing over who was the greatest, where this context comes in, where Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name. If anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and the servant of all. That's the key attribute of children that Jesus holds up. In Luke, we, we, we quoted those verses from Luke. Jesus' example comes after the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You remember the Pharisee comes in and he's just, he's looking up at God and look how great I am. I'm so great that I'm, you know, I'm not like that guy, the sinner over there, right? And, and Lord, you should just be glad I'm here, right? And the, and the tax collector that's beating his chest, he won't even look up at God. He's just, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, and Jesus says, that's the one who went home justified before God. Right after that was Jesus' teaching about children in Luke. The context for these examples of children is humility. And the presence of humility in those who enter the kingdom of heaven and the absence for those who do not. So God loves children so much. And they're so precious to him that he uses them as our example of humility for whether or how to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's how we become his children spiritually, beginning with humility. 
And he could have used some other example. He could have, you know, this person or that person or, or whatever. But he, he chose to use children. Why children? Why do you use children as, as our example of humility? Well, they don't have any pretense of greatness, right? Not when they're young. <laughs> as they age, as they start to get a little older, they, they think they can fly. They think they can, you know, do anything. But they know that when they're young and they're children, they can't do anything for themselves. They're dependent on adults to care for them. They simply receive whatever is given to them, right? They don't try to earn it. They know they can't. They just receive it. As we give to them what they need, they receive it. And that's how we enter the kingdom of heaven, by receiving it from God, giving it to us, not by earning it, not by trying to get it ourselves. We depend totally on God to give it to us in His grace. And even as our faith grows in Him, our humility doesn't go away. Our humility continues to grow also, or up or down, whatever that works better in your mind. We go lower, our humility grows, but whatever is more helpful to you, that's what's happening. Our faith is growing, and we're growing more humble as well. Um, turn to Second Peter chapter 1. Uh, with me to, to see this, this growth that's happening within us. In Second in Peter 1, Peter is talking about how God has given us the Word of God, um, precious and very great promises, that through them we can become partakers of the divine nature. We've escaped corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. He says in verse 5 of 2 Peter 1, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Make every effort, he says, to grow your faith. And as faith grows, you're supplementing your faith with these, with these qualities, this, this virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. All of those, what does he say in verse 8? If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they're growing within us. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some of us are worried, you know, if I learn more, I might get puffed up with pride. You know, people that learn more, they just seem to be so prideful. He says, but if you're taking that knowledge and you're applying it and you're being changed by it, you're being shaped by it, then you're, that's going to keep you from being unfruitful and ineffective. The prevention to pride growing as we learn more and as we grow in our faith is to apply it and to act in that. Verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed, from his former sins. Pride can be so dangerous um, that it can puff you up even as you learn more about the Lord, even as you learn more of His truth. But what happens as we grow in these ways is that we also grow in humility. We don't forget that we've been cleansed from our sins because we needed to be cleansed from our sins. We, we, we don't leave that behind. As we grow in our faith, we remember what the Lord did for us. It's if we remain as children that we lack these qualities and then we become nearsighted and blind and forget that we were cleansed of our sins. That would be the opposite of humility, forgetting about sin, forgetting that that was a problem, forgetting that it's still a problem, right? That, that would be the opposite of humility. That would be pride. 
And that comes from not growing our faith. That comes when we're not supplementing our faith with virtue and, and all the rest. You remember 1 Corinthians 3? You remember how Paul could not address the people in Corinth as spiritual people in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians? Why? It was because they were still of the flesh. They hadn't been learning and growing in their faith. They were still children in their faith, and it was evident by their lack of holiness, the way that they lived their lives. So, brother and sister, that's why we preach the Word of God this way. Colossians 1, 28, 29 says, we preach like this so that we will be able to present everyone as mature. Mature in Christ. So, the most necessary posture for salvation is humility. It's the prerequisite for salvation, and it's a distinguishing mark of those who are saved, those who are in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, because we've received it. We've, it's been given to us, not earned. That's how we enter, and that's how we exist within this kingdom of God. So children are precious to God. They're, they're so precious, He holds them up as our example for humility so that we can even be in His kingdom with them. But there are a lot of wrong ideas about what humility looks like, aren't there? There's a false humility and there's a true humility. God sets up children as our example of true humility. And we're not getting in unless we become like them. We need to make sure that we understand what it is. So you've got a a few verses there in your notes. You don't have to turn to these. I'll turn to these and, and read them. And you'll notice part of what humility doesn't look like, what it does look like, and, and what, it, what it is as, as we live it out in our lives, as we grow in our faith and in our humility. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 23, verses 2 through 12. He tells us at the end, he says, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's the lesson that he wants us to know from verses 1 through 10. So what do those verses say? He says, uh, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. Why? For they preach, but do not practice. So first, humility does not look like hypocrisy, right? That that would be the opposite of humility, uh, saying one thing, but doing another, right? Next, Jesus says, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with one finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Humility does not look like working so that others will see you working, right? Humility does not look like you doing everything for man-pleasing reasons. That's what he goes on to say in verse 6. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. So he says, and that's when he leads into that that statement, the greatest will be your servant, whoever exalts himself will be humble. So humility does not look like hypocrisy. It doesn't look like living to be seen by others, living to be honored by others in a man-pleasing way. It doesn't look like titles, great titles, and, and, and anything that we see here, right? Jesus says, this is humility, the opposite of all of that. 
So then what does it look like? Well, Philippians 2 tells us a lot about what it looks like. And we won't spend a lot of time because we've, we've seen these verses. We know these verses. But in verses 3 through 8 of Philippians 2, uh, he says to us, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So humility looks like counting others more significant than ourselves. Humility looks like, verse 4, let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It looks like looking out for other people and their interests. It looks like, verse 5, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who through, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He emptied himself. Instead of filling himself up with, with all that was rightly his, Instead of us filling ourselves, we're following his example by emptying ourselves, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself. How? By becoming obedient. So we're following his example in humility by becoming obedient. How far? To the point of death, even death on a cross. So he's showing us in the New Testament, throughout his word, what humility doesn't look like and what it does look like. And we can see from our life where we're growing and where we need to grow in humility. You know, it's not, God, why are you doing this to me? (laughs) As we go through, whatever we go through, it's, God, do what you will to me and in me for you, right? One more verse, and this is also in your notes, James chapter 4. In verses 6 through 10, he explains what humility will look like. And he says in in chapter 4, the context there is, uh, you know, fights come from within your own hearts because you want but you don't get, and you fight for it, and you get angry at everybody else. But, verse 6, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What does it look like? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Again, arranging ourselves underneath God as, as He's the one with the authority and we obey Him. We, we submit ourselves to Him. We re- resist the devil. We reject Him and He will flee from us. There's strength in humility. There's strength in this faith. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We see there that the only way we can do that, the only way for, our, for any part of us to be cleansed from sin is to repent and to believe in Jesus, right? This is our connection between repentance and humility and, and faith and humility. That's, that's how that happens. He says in verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, be wretched and mourn and weep. Does he tell us that we're supposed to be just walking around miserable and depressed all the time? Is, is that what he's saying? Well, no, only when we sin. <laughs> that's when we mourn over, that's what we, what we mourn over, and that's when we mourn. The closer we get to the Lord, the more clearly we see our sin, and the more we mourn over it. God, I, I want to stop sinning. Please make me stop sinning. That's truly mourning over sin, but at the same time, we're rejoicing in the grace that he's given us to forgive us and cleanse us from those sins and from the penalty of those sins, right? And so we see that humility is taking sin very seriously. And humility is repenting of that sin and cleansing our hands and our hearts and purifying. 
I heard someone say recently, well, we've been living in sin for years and just with a laugh, like it was just nothing. Making light of sin is not humility. It's not humility before God, right? Being entertained by sin is not humility. Being enthralled with it, enamored of sin, consumed with sin, that's not humility before God. We draw near to God and we draw near to Him in humility and He exposes our sin and we don't hold on to it, we throw it out. We get rid of it. Mourning over it, repenting of it, that's humility before God. And then living in the grace and the mercy and the kindness that He's given us. You know, when a child does something wrong and, and humbly comes before you, um, five seconds later, they're off and running around like nothing ever happened, right? <laughs> there, there's a mourning for sin, and I'm sorry, and then there's joy and peace because of forgiveness. Second um, Chronicles 7, uh, this is in your notes, and we're not going to turn to it, but we know this, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and repent, turn from their wicked ways. This is not a universal promise for all countries and nations. This was for the, the country of Israel, the nation of Israel. But the connection is there still, the connection between humility and repentance. You have other verses in your notes. You can work through those um, yourselves or with your koinonia group and, and look at the connection between humility and living in God's grace and His love and His forgiveness. How can you grow in humility? How, how do we become more like children in humility? How, is it just constantly berating ourselves and just putting ourselves down? Is, is that what God tells us to do? That, we haven't seen that in any of those verses. That is a type of humility, right? Just putting yourself down all the time and calling yourself names and, and just living in a pile of mess and, and hatred of self. But that's a worldly, false kind of humility. That's not a true humility. See, when we're doing that, we're trying to achieve a state of humility, and it becomes pride for us when we try to achieve a false humility. It implies, I'll figure it out, I'll do it, I'll make myself get there, right? So how do we do it? How do we become more like children in our pride, in our humility, not in our pride? It's the true heart response to God. Humility is the true heart response to God as you encounter God as you recognize your weakness and your sin in the light of all that He is, right? So we, we don't need to try to make ourselves humble. We need to come before our God. And as we encounter Him in His greatness, in His eternality, in all of His attributes that are just unfathomable and yet comprehensible to us, um, we become humbled. We encounter God. You can't make yourself become humble in a three-step process any more than you can get yourself saved in a three-step process. It comes about in our heart and mind when we encounter Him. When Moses encountered God at the burning bush, he removed his shoes and then he fell on his face before God, or he hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. When the people saw God on the, Mount, on the mountain, Mount Sinai in Exodus 20, they turned away. They were afraid to look at God because of His power. When Balaam encounters the angel of the Lord, a, a pre-incarnate Jesus, when he encounters him, Balaam falls to his face after the donkey told him, <laughs> look, there he is. Isaiah says, woe is me. Ezekiel, when he sees the vision of God, he falls on his face before him. When Jesus is transfigured before his disciples in John 17, they fall on their faces, they're terrified. In John 18, when they come to arrest Jesus in the garden, he says, I am he, and they fall back, 
right? When you encounter the Lord, in Revelation 1, as John does, he falls on his, at his feet as though dead. We don't have to try to make ourselves humble before God. If we would come before him in truth and see him as he is and, 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 and notice him and learn about him and, and recognize who he is, it's the right and automatic response where we'll be humbled before him. John Calvin said, man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. Spend time with God. Be in his word to see more of who he is, and we will be humbled. We will be humbled before God. Humility is the precursor to loving others and serving other people. Right? I mean, if you believe you're above another person, you're not going to serve that person. You're not going to love that person. Humility prepares us to love and to serve. Humility is the precursor to thankfulness. Why would you ever be thankful for something that you believe that you deserved, right? Or that you think that you got yourself. Humility prepares us to be thankful. Humility prepares us to forgive other people. You know, how can I forgive someone done when they've done something to me, the great and exalted me? <laughs> but if I'm humbled before God, then it's easier to forgive other people when I've been wrong. Humility is the precursor to so much of our obedience. A.W. Tozer said, For the Christian, humility is absolutely indispensable. Without it, there can be no self-knowledge, no repentance, no faith, and no salvation. That's why Jesus says we need to become like children in their humility. We cannot enter the kingdom of God without humility. We start there and we continue there. So children are humble. And Jesus loves these humble children. And, and he holds them up as our example of what to be like because he loves them and they're precious and they're special to him. That's where we need to be if we want to be walking in faith and living with God now and forever. But there's a fourth and final reason that we can see clearly that God loves children. They're special and they're precious to him. Number four in our notes, children are special to God because he makes them a priority of our time. He makes them a priority of our time and of our life. We looked at Deuteronomy 6 last week, and you remember how often are we to be teaching our children, whether we're sitting down or standing up or walking or, he didn't say driving at the time, but, you know, when we're driving, when we're at home, when we're not at home, all of the time. What do we use as tools? Our actions, our words, whether we're sitting down in a teaching time or whether we're just driving down the highway and we see a sign and, and, and your son or your daughter asks, what does that sign say? What does that mean? And it's a teaching moment. We're teaching constantly and continually throughout our days. What we teach, what we do and don't do, what we say and don't say, these are all things that are teaching our children all along the way. It's training them for before they become adults and they have the same responsibilities that we have, right? getting them ready for that. Proverbs 22.6 says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And we know from Proverbs that they are what's generally true. It doesn't hold up in every single case that if you train a child that they'll never stray. He's not saying that. What is nearly guaranteed is if you don't train them up, they will go find their own way, right? But when you do your best to train them, they may still go off on their own way, but you will have done everything that you can because they've reached an age where they have to make those kinds of decisions for themselves. 
But that's what the, the, the wisdom of Solomon says to us, is if we're training them, that will prepare them to go the way they should go. Until the time that they can decide, we as adults need to be teaching and training up children in the way they should go. Until then, we are, Ephesians 6, 4, bringing them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord, right? It's the continual and unending high priority of our time, bringing up our children. But what is it that we should be teaching our children? As we're pouring our time and our lives into children, what is it that we're, that we're teaching them? Is it how to get dressed? Yes. <laughs> that. How to eat with a fork? Yes, definitely. That would be something that would be beneficial. But, but more importantly, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 is, is, is highly instructive, really important for us to know what we're going to be teaching our children. What, as we're pouring our lives into them, what do they need to know? And Timothy was a, a younger disciple of Christ, and Paul was writing to him at the end of his life, end of Paul's life. He's, he's, he's passing on to him the most important things that Timothy needs to know. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 14, Paul says, but as for you, instead of becoming one of those, in verse 13, evil people and imposters who go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He says, continue in that. What you learned, either formally or informally, in the constant teaching of your life, what you internalized and firmly believed, it says, that's the pistuo with the epi appended to that or, or prefixed to that. You firmly believed what you've learned, everything that you were taught, because you heard it from reliable people who taught you. When did it start? Since childhood. Your whole life, as you started as a child, you were taught these things, and you learned these things, and you firmly believed them. What did they teach? These people that had control over Timothy when he was a kid, the sacred writings, the scriptures. And he was acquainted with them. He knew them. He was taught to memorize them. He was taught to know them. He was well acquainted, acquainted with them, even if he didn't know what to do with them yet, right? Even as a child, he doesn't know quite what to do with them. He's got them memorized. He's acquainted. They're in his heart, in his mind. And what are they good for? They're, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. When you get to that age, and Timothy was, was past that age, whatever age that is for any of us, then you'll believe, and that brings salvation. Then comes the well-known verse 16, and what we're after, what we do with the Scriptures as we bring children up with the Word. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Why do we teach children the Scriptures? Because it's breathed out by God. That's a pretty reliable source, right? God himself, the most all-knowing, all-wise, all-loving, all-powerful God, breathed it out. He's the source, and we can trust him, so we can trust his word, and it's now profitable to us. It's profitable. It's useful. It gives a useful benefit, the word means. It's, it's an advantage to our children and to us. What is it? 
What is that benefit? What is that advantage that our children will have as we teach them the word that other children won't have? There are four of them listed here. There's teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. Have you thought on each of these and what each of these means and, and, and does in our lives for ourselves and for our children? These are incredibly valuable. I can't think of anything more valuable than the Word of God to pour into their hearts and minds because of what these prophets, these advantages are. There's teaching, or, or the Word is uh, teaching or training. The Word of God teaches us how we should think about a particular topic, any given topic, so that we will begin and continue on the right path. That's why we teach the Word of God. That's why we study the Word of God, for the teaching that it gives, so that we can know what to think and how to think about things that happen so that we'll be on the right path. Reproof. When we have strayed off the path, the Word of God brings us to the point of conviction. It exposes our sin so that we realize and confess it that we've strayed off the path. That's why we teach our children the Word of God. Not so that we can punish them when they're being irritating to us, but so that we can show them where they've strayed off the path. It brings correction. This means the Word of God takes what was knocked down and makes it to stand up again. In other words, it brings us back onto the path. So, so we're teaching the Word of God because we want them to know the path. That's the, the teaching. We, we teach them the Word of God. We're training them in the Word of God so that we can reprove them when they've gotten off track. It, it, we can correct them and bring them back onto the track, the path that they should be on. And it brings training in righteousness. It gives us what we need so that we can discipline our thoughts and our actions to live as we should, and it keeps us on the path. That's why we teach the Word of God. That's why we sing the Word of God. That's why we want kids to memorize, and, and we want to memorize for ourselves, because it does all of this. Those are the advantages that it gives to us coming directly from the mouth of God onto these pages, and we have them here. And so we pour our minds and our hearts into it, and we pour our time into teaching these truths to our children. That's the benefit and the profit of the Word for our children. It launches them on the right path. It reveals when they've strayed off the path. It brings them back to the path, and it keeps them on the path. It's what it does for us. That's what the Word does and our children, as we raise them, teaching them the Scriptures. But that takes time. <laughs> that takes a lot of time, and that takes commitment. It requires us to prioritize spending time with our children, to teach them, to love them, to guide them in these ways. It takes time for us to learn it ourselves. <laughs> we have to know it ourselves before we can teach it to them. Brother, sister, if we're looking for a mission field, if we're looking for, for people that need to know about Jesus, that, that don't know Jesus yet, you don't have to look across the planet. You can look here in your own family and in our own church family. Our children are targeted by the culture and by the world. Our children are effectively and efficiently targeted by culture and by the God of this world, little g, Satan himself. There are so many so many ways in culture, so many ways in school, so many ways on TV and in books and movies that the enemy is able to start their minds off on the wrong track, to show them a different path and to keep them on that path. It's not just a good idea to teach our children this. It doesn't just lead to better communities and better societies. This is commanded and expected by God for His glory. In fact, it's a measure of what our faith really is made of. 
what are we passing on to our children? What is it that we believe, the, the faith of our fathers, that gets passed on to us, that gets passed on to our children? It, it's a measure of that. In fact, to be a pastor or a deacon in the church means loving your children in this way, not being perfect at it. <laughs> but, but doing all that you have, all that you can, and prioritizing raising your children, even more specifically spelled out, is care for children who don't have parents. Is your faith real? Does your faith affect your life? If it does, if it is real, religion that is pure and undefiled, faith that is real before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. If my faith is real, if it's going to be lived out, am I caring for children who don't have people to care for them? That's why it's a measure of what our faith is, what it's made up of. Are we caring for children? Are we caring for our own children or, or for children who are not our own? Those who are orphans need to be cared for. God cares for those who cannot care for themselves. And those who believe in Him will do the same. In the Old Testament, God says that. In Deuteronomy 10, you have it in your notes, verses 18 and 19, we won't read it, but He cares for the fatherless, the widow, the sojourner, therefore He says, so should we. In the New Testament, we just read James 1.27. That's what it looks like when your faith is lived out. So God commands us to care for children. They're special to Him. They belong to Him. And part of the reason that we're still here on this earth after we get saved is to care for them. So our application. What do we take from this lesson this morning, these, these truths that we've had while our first in our application, humble yourself before God. Right? Humble yourself like a child, like children, humble ourselves before God. That's following their example. That's, that's what God says we need to do to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what it looks like to exist in his kingdom. It's the necessary posture. It, it prevents fighting. It, it precurs, it's the precursor for serving, for forgiving, for loving, for growing. It brings about a greater love and obedience to God when we humble ourselves before him. And we do that by encountering Him, not by making ourselves try to become humble, but encountering Him. Next, in our application, prioritize caring for children. Let's prioritize caring for children. God prioritizes their care, and He tells us that He wants us to be doing the same thing. Love them as God loves them. They are precious to God. Pouring ourselves into children, prioritizing caring for them can look different for each of us. If your parents... Your number one priority is the Lord. You thought I was going to say children. It's the Lord. It's always the Lord. Parents together raising children. Your next priority is your spouse. Again, you might have thought I was going to say the, your children. <laughs> it's always the Lord. It's always your spouse and the Lord next. Then it's your children and the Lord. And so we need to be pouring ourselves into knowing the Lord pouring ourselves into knowing our, our spouses, our wives and our husbands, and pouring ourselves into caring for children. Parents, if you're not doing that ministry, please don't sign up for any other ministry. That's the starting place for where God wants to see faithfulness. They need our attention. God made them that way. Adult brothers and sisters, you can care for children in any number of ways, even if you don't have them yourself. You, you can help to support parents, encourage parents. You can take rotations teaching Canyon kids. Again, praise God that we've got another class opening up. 
Some of you can foster or adopt to care for children who don't have parents, the orphans. Some of you, um, in fact, probably most of us should not be fostering or adopting. We're, we're not a church where we're going to come down on every person here and say, you need to do that because that's not for everybody. But all of us can come alongside those who are fostering, who are adopting, who are caring for other children. Um, you, you can please uh, continue to support that Backpacks of Hope ministry. We ourselves have been um, blessed to see that with foster children that come into our home and we see them and they come in with no shoes, they come in with no clothes, um, they have a diaper that doesn't fit, and, and there's no way to care for them unless we have this, this backpack that has everything they need for the first 24 hours. It's such a great blessing. Caring for children is a blessing. It, it's commanded by God, it's expected by God, and we're equipped to do it. And that's what he wants from us. If we're not living out our faith, our faith doesn't mean much, does it? We've got to be living it out. As we grow in the knowledge of God, we grow in humility, He will produce the fruit that He's after, the fruit of maturing faith and holiness, a changed life. And it's all for His glory. He gets all the credit. Father, we praise You, God. We thank You this morning for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that You are so good to us, that as Your children, You care for us, You guide us, You protect us, You provide everything for us, Lord. God, we thank you. We praise you. We worship you because you are good and you are powerful. Lord, I pray that you would teach us how to be better servants, Lord, more obedient servants, Lord, who love you and are humbled because we encounter you every day, Lord, in your word, in prayer, Lord, by serving. God, in the spiritual disciplines, Lord, that teach us what it looks like to become more like Christ. Father, thank you for your grace to allow that to happen in us. I pray that it would, God, that we would grow more and more obedient to you because of love. Father, I thank you for the example of children that they are to us. I pray that you would teach us how to, how to better love them, how to better guide them and raise them up for you, for your glory. God, I pray that as we go through this week that you'd protect each one of our minds and hearts, Lord. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. God, we thank you, we praise you, we lift up the name of Jesus in his name, amen.